go to Genesis chapter 2 this morning. Genesis chapter 2 as we continue our series through this book of beginnings. Last week we concluded studying the creation week as we considered the benefits of both physical and spiritual rest, taking one day of rest out of seven days. Um, The physical rest is to help our spiritual needs. I shouldn't say spiritual rest, but we take a day of rest physically in order that we might focus on our needs spiritually. God gave us this example. He rested on day seven. He blessed it. He sanctified it. And then He rested. Today, we don't celebrate the last day of the week, but we celebrate the first day of the week. God had finished His work of creation. He stepped back, said it was very good. He he then rested from His work. We now look at the work of redemption. It's very good. We celebrate the first day of the week because that's the day that our Lord Jesus resurrected and made our faith possible. Uh, Remember that it's not just a day just for you to sit around and do absolutely nothing, but it's a day that we would zero in on our spiritual needs and we would focus entirely on the Lord. And part of that's when we gather together like we're doing now. Church is important for your spiritual life. And so you're, you're meeting part of your spiritual needs today by trying to rest on this day and come in here and hopefully hear some preaching from God's Word. And so it is, it is focusing on what you need spiritually. And by the grace of God, we're still gathering in freedom. Amen. Keep praying for our nation. We concluded last week by considering the wider scope of the importance of God resting on the seventh day and what it means for us to enter into God's rest. We can't work our way to salvation, so Christ did the work necessary in dying for us upon the cross. And those who have accepted God's free gift of salvation through faith in Christ alone have entered into God's rest, as we saw from Hebrews 4, 9, and 10, where it says, There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his works as God did from his. Now I had one interesting comment and one good question from last week that I should probably clarify before we begin. Karen Williams was jokingly concerned about her cats getting a day of rest or not allowing you. They don't need a day of rest? Ah, okay. Well, when you were telling me that, I thought maybe you had made your cats into like miniature beast of burden and they were bringing you food. And... <laughs> cats, amen. Um, and cat people, you know. They're just different. They're a different bunch, amen. Well, on a more serious note, somebody asked me if it was okay to garden on the day of rest. Task like that. Let me address something I didn't address last week. First of all, I believe the day of rest is a principle for our day, but not a command like it was under the ceremonial law. Technically, you can do as you see fit. Colossians 2.16 tells us, "Let Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or the new moon or the Sabbath days. So, understanding that, though, it doesn't mean you can rightfully excuse yourself from the command of not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. 
like you can't say, well, Colossians 2.16 says you can't judge me for not being in church. That's not what it says. But it does mean you're not bound to the ceremonial law like under the old law covenant. However, if you want my opinion, I have one. (laughs) Since the intent of the day of rest is to focus more intently on your walk with God, then if gardening or stuff like that is enjoyable, that it's not necessarily servile, and it doesn't detract from your fellowship with God, I personally don't see that as a bad thing. My opinion. I can see where certain peaceful activities can be a time of refreshment, a time of fellowship between you and God. I used to go out and pull the weeds. Remember that? And that's how I would meditate and study upon what I was going to be preaching. I think those things are okay. Um, because it's refreshing. It's keeping you in tune with God. Anyway, the, the point is, don't allow those things to be the reason why you stay out of church. Amen. That's when it becomes a bad thing, Amen. when it starts to pull you away from the spiritual things. So that's my opinion. The, the point of the day of rest is to unplug unwind, fellowship with God, and be refreshed. And you ought to take advantage of that principle because God set the example. He's not going to be mad at you if you take a day of rest. That's for like the five people that work hard. Amen? Uh, The last comment I got was from Lander. He said, so if somebody comes to church and decides to sleep through the message... They're really just obeying the day of rest. Wake up, Lander! Nice try, but that's not... not (laughs) Okay, that was all from verses 1 through 3 of Genesis chapter 2. Let's begin today by picking up where we left off. And I'm going to have to read through the end of the chapter. So let's begin in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth and every herb of the field before it grew, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. But there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And the Lord God planted a garden east in Eden, and there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from thence it was parted and became into four heads. The name of the first is Pison. That is it which compasseth the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. There is Bedellium and the onyx stone. And the name of the second river is Gihon. The same as that compasseth the whole land of Ethiopia. And the name of the third river is Hedekel. Um, that is it which goeth toward the east of Assyria. And the fourth river is Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. 
And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Amen. Now, Genesis chapter 1 and 2, they both deal with the creation account. But don't allow this to cause you problems like it does for many. Maybe I should say some. Simply put, chapter 1 is creation from a wide-angle lens, if you will. When we get to chapter 2, we're zooming in and getting some of the finer details of creation. Particularly, we're going to get a lot more details concerning Adam and Eve. For this reason, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about the creation of plant life and nature and the heavens like we did from chapter 1 here in chapter 2. Uh, we're not going to take time to do all that, but we're going to zero in on the creation of mankind. Now, only because some like controversy. And, and worse, because some like to make such things a point of contention. And because I don't mind having the debate, I like to ponder certain things. Let me quickly address the statement in verse 5 where it says, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth. There are some, they are dogmatic, that this proves God didn't allow rain to fall upon the earth until the great flood in Noah's day in Genesis chapter 7, some 1,650 years later. The problem is, it doesn't say that. So why do some try to make it say so? Well, they combine this with Hebrews 11.7 where we read, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet, moved with fear. The thought there is that what he had not seen yet would have been rain. But again, Hebrews 11.7 never says that. There are many things we could get into here. <laughs> um, for example, when God told Noah it was going to rain, Noah never asked what rain is. I mean, for something that hasn't fallen in 1,650 years, I would be wondering, you want me to do what because of what? <laughs> he doesn't do that. Also in verse 5 of our text, after it says God had not caused it to rain, we read, and there was not a man to till the ground. So does that mean after there was a man to till the ground, God then allowed it to rain upon the earth? Well, both sides have their reasons. Both sides have their strong opinions. But I would like to ask, why would any of us get so worked up over things the Scriptures never expressly state? You've got to understand, people divide over stuff like this. <laughs> it's just complete nonsense. None can prove it rained before the flood. None can prove that it didn't. And I'm not going to give you my opinion because it is good for us to learn when the Scriptures are silent, we should learn to be silent. All right, so that's sermonette number one. With that little bit of controversy out of the way, let's take note here of verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. 
Out of all of God's creation, we find that when man was created and formed out of the dust of the ground, it was something very unique that we don't find with the rest of creation. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You see, man was made distinctly from all the rest of creation. Elihu said in Job 33, 4, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. And then in verse 6, he goes on to say, I am also formed out of the clay. Isaiah 64 and verse 8, But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father, we are the clay, and Thou art, and Thou our potter. We are all the work of Thine hand. So, in pointing this out, I just want to show you that when God created man, there was a part of man that was going to be perishable. The body. It was formed from the dust of the ground. The Bible says, unto dust it must return. I don't care how many miles you log on the treadmill. I don't care how good you eat. I don't care how well you do all these other things. The day's coming. Your body's going to die. It's going to return to dust as it came. That's what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm all for logging as many miles, eating good, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm trying to show by example. Amen? And so it's okay to do those things. Um, all right, man. I'm t- Lord, please help us today. But also we see, listen, there's, there's the body that's going to die. But then there is that in a man that will never die. And that is your soul. God breathed into man. And he became a living soul. That's the part you need to take care of. Either you will live eternally with God in glory, or your soul will live eternally in a place called hell, where the worm dieth not. Your soul is going to live on whether it's in hell or in heaven. To live eternally, we must become partakers of the second birth, through faith in Christ alone. But if you refuse the gift of the second birth, the free gift of God, and you reject Christ, then you have chosen to take part in the second death, where the Bible says death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. It's your choice. It's your soul. God has given you a free will to do with it as you see fit. But you don't get to control the consequence. For now, we're going to put verses 15 through 17 on hold until we get to chapter 3. I'm going to tie those verses into chapter 3 at that time. Let's drop down to verses 18 through 20. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him and help me for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field, every fowl of the air, and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature... That was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all the cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. Now Adam was not alone in the strictest sense. Amen? God conversed with him, we'll see, in chapter 3. There was the upper realm of the angelic host. There was the lower realm of the brute beast. Yet neither were of the same kind with Adam So here's Adam alone, caught in between with nobody to converse with on familiar terms. I've watched people try to talk to their dogs. And the dog's just like, yeah, where's my treat? 
I mean, you can try to converse with him, whatever, that's, that's your business. Um, there was nobody to converse with him on, on the same level. God declared, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him and help me. And then God seemingly does something strange. He brings the animals before Adam for him to name them. Now I mentioned while we were in chapter 1, this proves that God was giving to Adam dominion. When you get to name something, you have dominion over it. Where's my kids? I named you. It is an act of authority to be able to impose names upon someone. And it is an act of subjection to receive that name. We see this when the children of Judah were taken captive by the Babylonians. Daniel 1.7, it says, Unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. In other words, the Chaldeans were giving them names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Bel- Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael Meshach, and of Azariah Abednego. So they received the name, they were in subjection, they were given the name, they were under authority. That might be important next week, I don't know yet. So God, He was crowning Adam with glory and honor by allowing him to name the animals. God was transferring His dominion to Adam to oversee the works of His hands. I've quoted it many times already. We're not going to read it again. But Psalms, you can read it, Psalm 8, verses 5-8. through 8. We talked about it a lot in chapter 1. And by Adam being able to name all the animals, it proved that mankind did not evolve from animals. Adam here is not some kind of a brute caveman. Amen? Listen, he's so intelligent, he can name all the animals. You know, we, we do stupid stuff like, oh, that's blacky, and that's, that's whitey, and that's, you know, that's this, and, and that's going to be bluey, and that's going to be furry. And... No, listen, he gave them names. Amen? Is everybody okay? Is, am I the only one that does that? I need my leather coat, I call it leathery. Amen. I don't know what to call it. Uh, I need my coat. And so we, we do stupid things like that. But Adam here, he was very intelligent. He's not some caveman. He didn't have to accidentally discover fire. And so he's very intelligent. That's how God made us. He was perfect. Where am I at? Help me out, Adrian. You wrote this. Where did I? Now, he's able to name all the creatures, but after Adam names the animals, we read this statement at the end of verse 20. But for Adam there was not found an help meet for him. Through this seemingly odd process of having Adam name all the animals, it evidently served the purpose to show Adam There was no one else upon the earth who was like Him. Which again, it shows how mankind has been created superior to the animals. The whole of creation put together, think about that. The stars, the sun, the plant life, the the water, the animals, all of creation put together could not make and help meet for Adam. So while Adam was not alone in the strictest sense, he was alone in companionship. And this shows us that mankind is designed to fellowship. We are designed to have social interaction with one another. Some more than others, but 
This is how God has designed us. This is why during all the COVID isolation, suicide rates went up. We're not meant to be that way. I'll save my opinions for another time on all that. But we are meant to interact and to have social interaction. And if that's how God means it to be, then I wonder where all the rules were coming from. Okay, we're going to leave that alone. We are made to have companionship. Someone to share our life with. Someone to suit the nature of our soul. Someone to help supply our needs. Matthew Henry wrote, It is a pleasure to him, speaking about the man, to exchange knowledge and affection with those of his own kind, to inform and to be informed, to love and to be loved. Perfect solitude would turn a paradise into a desert and a palace into a dungeon. End quote. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Adam, having now learned that there was no suitable uh, completer for him upon the earth, God says, I'm going to make for you and help me. What does that mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. Amen? There's going to be somebody who would help Adam. Somebody that helped meet his needs. Somebody that helped him meet God's will. Somebody that would help him along. Someone who would surround him. Someone that would be there for his support and his benefit. Now let's build upon this by looking at verses 21 through 23. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So where was Adam to find this helpmeet? He had no other choice than to trust God. He was going to have to like his choice. There was no other choice. Adam had to let go and let God. And for those of you who are unmarried and are hopeful for a spouse one day, I just want to encourage you, trust God's timing and His choice. There are some God will choose to remain as virgins. Not to grow bitter, but to be completely sold out for God and for the work of the ministry. But to the rest of us who don't have power over our physical desires, we we are not going to be able to abstain from that. It is God's will to marry rather than to burn, 1 Corinthians 7, rather to keep burning in lust. It's better to go ahead and have that appetite fulfilled God's way through marriage. We still have to trust God and His choice. When God made the woman, He brought her to Adam. As a dad with three children still remaining in the home and unmarried, I routinely remind them that if it's God's will for you to marry, God has someone just for you. And one day He's going to bring the two of you together. But be patient. Don't wreck your life because you weren't patient and you jumped into a relationship you should have never been in to begin with and now you're stuck with a nagging wife or an abusive husband. He brings her to Adam. 
I believe it was Dave Summerdorf who once gave the illustration that has stuck in my mind. The most important thing you can do as a single is to run your race. Do God's will for your life. Focus on God. Grow in your walk with Him. And as you're running your race, as you look around you, it's blurry. People are going to pass you up. You're going to pass people up. But then one day, God's going to bring somebody along who's going to be running at your same pace. And you're going to look over and they're going to be in perfect focus. And that's who God has for you. But you see, it's as you are focused on God. God, He caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He took one of his ribs and he made woman. And I'm sure you've heard the joke before. But when God brought the woman to Adam, He said, Whoa, man! She was a sight to see. Amen, men. We're very physically driven with our eyes. She was a sight. Nothing else like it on the earth. He calls her woman. The Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. And in a sense, she was given his name. He gave her his name in the first marriage and there wasn't a hyphenation in her name. They were one. They didn't have two separate accounts. They had a joint account. I told you it's going to get tense. I'm giving you truth. You see, these two together, they were like Joseph and Josephine. Robert and Roberta. Eric and Erica. Micah and Michaela. In the Song of Solomon, there is Solomon, which means peace, and his wife Shulamite, which means peaceful. They were one. Two people so closely joined together that when you look at one, you see the other. She is a crown to you. You see it. You can't get woman without man. You can't get she without he. You can't get female without male. And that's why the feminists are in a movement to change those terms. Because how dare we have a a pronoun that includes the man. Jesus is called the last Adam. God, He he goes to Adam, He takes a rib out, He he makes woman, he, He makes a bride for Adam. Jesus... He was going to be crucified near a different garden. And there was a garden tomb there where he would be laid. Jesus, as I said, he's called the last Adam. And from the last Adam's side, while he was on the cross, as he died, if I can put it this way, as he was in a deep sleep, a soldier came and pierced his side and forthwith there came out blood and water. The fluids of birth. Woman's water will break and eventually there'll be blood. And from the side of Jesus Christ, God was allowing him to purchase his bride. Us, the bride of Christ, the church of the living God, the blood bought. What an interesting parallel. 
the woman came from Adam's side. There's an old adage, and I, I think it's worth repeating. God didn't take a bone from Adam's head that a woman should rule over him. Nor did God take a bone from Adam's feet that she should be trampled on by him. But she was taken from his rib, which is close to his heart. Husbands, your wife is to be close to your heart. The Bible says so plainly in Ephesians chapter 5, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. We are to love our wife as Christ did. We are to die. We are to die to ourself. We die to our needs, men. Our desires, our dreams. We lay it down and we die for her because that's what Christ did for His bride. What benefits her spiritually? What benefits her in this life? I do that for her. Amen. Amen. Love your wife just like Jesus loves the church. He gave His life for her and He said this, Not my will. Thine be done. Listen, men, it's not about you. We are to die and to keep her close to our heart, meeting her needs. And to the wife, Ephesians says, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Ladies, you are to be by your husband's side. Willingly submit to him and stand by Him. You came from the side of man, and you will find fulfillment at the side of man. Not leading Him, not dragging your feet behind Him, but staying with Him, being there for Him, submitting to Him. Well, preacher, that doesn't sound like what I hear from the world today. I know that. That's why divorce rates are out the roof. It is so profoundly simple. And yet we buck against God's design for the marriage. That man's not going to rule over me. You don't know what she's like at home. Husbands, die to yourself. Give yourself to your wife. It's so basic. Wives, don't you take the reins, but you stand at his side. This is where we find fulfillment and satisfaction. Now, let's observe how something was taken from within Adam, and that which was taken from him was given to her. It means that Man in the garden was now missing something. Ladies, you can look at your husband and say, you're not all there. (laughs) Adam lost something. It was given to her. And this is why the woman is the completer of the man. The man gets it back 
when he is standing next to his wife with his arm around her. What did man lose? He lost something very close to his heart. That is his sensitivity. Women innately have a greater sensitivity to God and spirituality. I've witnessed it. I know this to be true. They are naturally worshipers of God. Some of you are here because your wife said, we need to go to church. I've given my testimony before. I wouldn't be here today had my wife not said that. You see, men have to work at it. We have to learn this from the woman. We learn of sensitivity towards God, towards God, towards other people. We learn this from the life of the woman. God took from Adam and placed it in the woman, and she would now become the completer of the man. Women are generally more apt to worship and express more hunger for the things of God. They have a spirituality that we often have to learn to grow into. In fact, what you'll find in the New Testament, and I'm not being ugly, I'm just giving you a Bible. What you'll find in the New Testament is that the woman has to be tempered to not give into the temptation to usurp her authority over the man in the church. That's what the Bible says. Just consider what I'm trying to say in light of what we'll see in chapter 3 when Satan comes and he tempts Eve. Satan doesn't come and tempt Eve with something physical. You see, a man is going to fall to temptation physically. We are very driven by our sight. Amen. Women are very emotional. And Satan, he he comes to Eve and he doesn't say, hey, why don't you look at this website? Why don't you check this out? Why don't you check her out? He he doesn't do any of those things. But, But he comes to Eve and he tempts her with a higher level of spirituality. And he says unto her, Ye shall be as gods. A woman has a hunger for spirituality. Satan appealed to her by saying, She could be more like God. That's a woman. Adam, he knew better. He was not drawn into that temptation. Yes, he sinned. But Paul makes it clear in 1 Timothy 2.14 that Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. I'll say more when we get to chapter 3. While women have sensitivity, get this now, men, they offer stability. We generally don't have the highs of a woman's emotions. Nor do we have the lows of their vulnerabilities to be deceived due to their sensitivity. Even battered women are often drawn back to the same abusive relationship, believing that this time it will be different. We need each other. Women naturally have a spirituality that we need. I mean to tell you, we held some prayer meetings before the Jubilee and the women that were present got a hold of God. We need that. We need their spirituality. But did you know a lot of the charismatic is rooted in women 
being the main proponent of those things? Why? You're drawn to a higher level of spirituality. You're, you're sensitive to those things. So what do you need as a woman? You need a man who has stability. You say, don't be carried away with those things. Who's going to try to keep you level? Anytime in that charismatic movement it's left unchecked, it can spiral out of control very quickly. I've been in that environment and I've seen it. And it was the women who were leading it. They have a huge draw to the tongues movement. There's a balance. Women are like sports cars. They can turn, they can hug the corners at high speeds. It's emotionally out of control almost for us as men. It seems like, whoa, men, we're just like a work truck, amen? We're just a big, nasty-looking, rusted-out utility truck that still has a granny gear. How many of you remember that? Amen? You put that thing down in that granny gear, you can walk beside it. And that's a man. He doesn't, he doesn't look good. Amen? Uh, he doesn't have that appeal. But he serves a purpose. And he plods along. Bring stability to the relationship. We need each other because we're different. We balance each other out. You have been uniquely created by God today. Amen. Different from the rest of His creation. You are so special to God, He died for you. Amen. If you don't know Him, you need to be saved. Amen. You say, what does that mean? I, I don't know those terms. You need to place your faith and trust alone that Christ died for you to pay your sin debt and to save you and to bring you to God, to give you a relationship with God, to reconcile you together. If you're praying for a spouse one day, be patient. Wait on God. Wait for God's choice. Keep yourself pure. Don't get ahead of God. Don't wreck your life, but wait for Him to bring the one He has for you. And finally this morning, how is your marriage? I'm taking more time this morning because marriage is, listen, outside of salvation, marriage is the biggest decision you'll ever make. How is your marriage? Husbands, is your wife close to your heart? And wives, are you standing by your man? Please don't complicate God's design for the home. We'll say much more next week. We could only get into so much this morning. Let's pray.